0: Let's go to God in prayer. God, we thank you for the day, for the day that's the small piece of the day that's behind us and the full day that lies ahead. We thank you that we can take a deep breath and feel your spirit fill us and release and let all of that, that which distracts us go as we breathe deeply. You are the breath of life. You gave us life with your breath. And so we are humbly grateful for that. Lord, we know that you have revealed yourself to us in Scripture and through the person of Jesus. And so we pray, God, that we might have eyes to see and ears to hear when your voice calls clearly through to us. Help us to be open and curious about perhaps the nuances and the deeper places that we go in Scripture. And I pray that we might be blessed this morning, O God, in knowing that around the table sits our friends, some well-known and some others maybe just getting to know. But around our table also there are many stories. Some stories are hard right now and others are joyful. And we pray that we can be a companion, a companion of sisters that share both. So we thank you for your word and we pray that we might have an open heart and hear your voice. We pray these things in your name. Amen. Are you trying to seduce me, Mrs. Robinson? Does that sound familiar to anyone? (laughs) That is a famous line from the, if you can believe it, 1967 movie, The Graduate with Dustin Hoffman, Academy Award-winning graduate. <clears throat> and in that line, it conjures up, you know, in that time, it was, a, it was kind of the era of free love and everything was, you know, wide open. And uh, uh, we had all of these, uh, you know, taboos were being lifted or at least shoved against but it conjures up all sorts of images that make the issue of adultery playful and commonplace and entirely sexual. But in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, none of the above is true. In our scriptures and the way that God has revealed society and our place in that to us, adultery was neither playful nor commonplace and not entirely sexual so let's uh be about the business of finding out why those these three things are true in old testament scripture it's used quite often metaphorically and that's how it's not always just a something that's sexual in the prophetic tradition the you know in the tradition of the prophets it's oftentimes used to describe Israel's idolatrous transgressions of the covenant with God, meaning they they took their attention from God and put it someplace else. That was considered metaphorically adul, uh, adultery. And um, so this commandment goes way beyond just marital and sexual purity, although the commandment as as we're going to look at it today consists primarily of that particular um, subject. But also, it's very important to remember the context of the time frame that we're talking about. Because the time frame we're talking about is a time when marriage was a business proposition. It was not a proposition of, Romeo and Juliet, or you know the way we know it today, it was a business proposition. So there was a lot more tied into that than it simply was. You know, you I don't want you looking at my woman. You know, there was more to that. It was like I don't want you looking at my horse, or and I don't want you looking at my property. You know, and if you're going to look, you're going to you need to pay. So anyway, there was a lot more tied into that, but it it also was aimed at protecting the lineage and the inheritance rights of fathers and sons that's part of that business proposition so if you had this adulterous behavior going on who's to say whose child that is they didn't have paternity tests at that time and as you know progeny and the the line continuing on with your blood was extremely important it was a central to the people populating and carrying on the covenant of 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 god and the covenant was you shall multiply as much as the grains of the sand on the beach and the stars in the sky and you will be a people that will carry my word forward so we had this society within a society being created and in that society in the society we are being we God is revealing God's self to us, and our standards are being set for how we will operate together with each other. That's what the Ten Commandments are really all about so um so another in another way, this commandment is designed to be very protective of a family unit because it was the family units that are going to make it through the desert to the promised land at some level and begin to be that society that then can impact all of the rest of the world. But for the purpose of this commandment in this place, it's narrowly defined. It concerns the actual sexual act of having intercourse outside of your marriage. So here's the thing it's kind of to me it's kind of like the way and i made it clear with the the men's study today this that i knew nothing about this in high school nothing i'm as pure as uh driven snow but others knew and i this is where i picked it up that in in this tradition in this time if one has not committed the actual sexual act one neither has broken the commandment nor is in danger of judgment. So what that means is kind of like that high school lingo, everything up to, you know, is fair game. The focus of this command is physical adultery. And it's interesting because Israel's attitude Toward adultery is not unique in the ancient Near East. There is a moral compass and a moral code that exists throughout the world of how people will be in relationship to each other. And adultery happens to be one of those things that for all of the culture around the Israelites, this adultery was not seen favorably. It was not permissible. So the phrase, the great sin, is used in Israel and elsewhere to describe adultery. And the use of this phrase for adultery, it links up, like I said, to the adultery language for Israel's disloyalty to Yahweh. So when we think about adultery in the in the microcosm between a man and a woman in a family system, then think of it in the macrocosm between God and Israel, and also between God and the world. So that's how we can think of it. In in Ezekiel 23, this is what it says. For they, meaning the Israelites, have committed adultery, and blood is on their hands. With their idols they have committed adultery, and they have even offered up to them for food the children whom they have borne to me. So this is, this is a way of the Old Testament actually telling us in this point, at least I think the way I interpret it, is that this is more than just about a sexual act between people. This is an inward attitude as well. So already we see the groundwork being laid for the origin and the heart of the law more so than the legalistic, oh, you can do everything up to, you know. So there's a broader understanding of what is going on when they're talking about adultery. So it also demonstrates the seriousness of which adulterous relationships at the human level are taken. And in issues of disloyalty strike at against the very integrity of any relationship, does it not? I mean, disloyalty, we we know what it's I think we've all probably experienced at some time in our life, whether it was in childhood, in elementary school, middle school, high school, college, or as an adult, we've experienced some kind of betrayal by a friend, a boyfriend, a spouse, some sort of disloyalty, and it's painful and it creates scar tissue and it and it can be devastating and it can it can actually i mean it it can be catastrophic for people and and some people actually never get past and can never live through it see how see how when you give your trust away and somebody takes it and stomps around on it so god is saying okay i'm trusting you with this world so do not be disloyal to me. And and a way, a training ground for that is do not be disloyal to each other. And the seriousness of such a violation is, is really seen in the prescription for the punishment for adultery was death. Now, we remember, it, well, I'm going to say we remember in the kind of queen way, but do you remember in the new testament when jesus came upon an adulteress do you remember what was she, what circumstance was she in yeah they were they were stoning her they were getting ready to stone her to death because she was an adulteress she had committed adultery according to the law and we'll get to that in a few minutes and therefore she was uh the convicted to die. And of course, Jesus came in and interceded with, you know, a very, um, interceded, I think, and put the sexual idea of sin in its proper place, rather than it being the sin of all sins. It put it in its proper place and said, if you don't have any sin here, here's the rock, throw it. So it put, it puts sexuality back into a more of a proper place than the the end-all and uh, above-all sin that people had regarded as before because it involved property and it involved uh, a loyalty and a possession. So it's sometimes linked with sins of oppression and violence. And adultery is a crime against persons. We know that. But it's also a sin against God. And the way this is displayed, if you remember way back in the story of Joseph and Potiphar's wife, Potiphar's wife was the original Mrs. Robinson, right? She saw Joseph and she's like, I gotta have Joseph. And he said, no, no. And she said, I gotta have you. And she made up all these lies and, you know, the trajectory of of Joseph's life. But what Joseph's responded to her with was what tells us that this is more, uh, that this is not within the realm of how God operates with people. Because Joseph said, as his argument, I cannot have this relationship with you. It is a sin against God. Joseph wasn't married. It's a sin against God. So we see this as a a broader violation because what happens is it violates God's creational intention. Now that's a big way of saying creational intention. What is God's intention for creation? What is God's intention for these people of Israel? What does God want to see happen? God wants these people to multiply and to create a society that reflects god that this the and god is still at that business is and we are still moving towards that with the the with christ who established the kingdom which is here and now and we're living into that kingdom life trying our best and with the help of the holy spirit we are having you know we are creating a society within a society and this society reflects God, reflects the will and the, and the picture of who God is. So it, it violates God's creational intention. And it links a positive, but it also links, There's this I think is very important. It links a positive role for sexuality within a commitment and loyalty. So sexuality, when sexuality is expressed in the within a committed and loyal relationship, it's beautiful. That's exactly what scripture is teaching us. Unlike what we have had to battle against since we landed on Plymouth Rock with those dang Puritans. The Puritans, you know, have have it's just been embedded into north american um mind that something is bad about sex sex is terrible sex is bad therefore we would be we were fine with watching a world war ii movie in which thousands of people are obliterated with a single machine gun but we don't want to have any kind of uh a costume malfunction that shows a piece of skin, or else we just go ballistic, and we just do you see i mean we we elevated this sin of sexuality to include sex period, and so this is addressing a healthy sexual relationship within a committed and loyal um, uh, circumstances, okay, so the verb for. Adultery is used with both men and women as a subject and concern uh concerns those who are married and those who are betrothed or engaged. And being engaged meant a lot different than it means to us today. Because at that point, as you know from the story of Jesus of Joseph and Mary, they were engaged. And I know in the in our in our twenty-first century we're like, Well, what's the big deal? You know, then But the engagement, you see, it was a business proposition. Engagement was an exchange of property. And so you're already infringing on another person's property. So it was a big deal, engagement at that time. And so uh, the same verb is used, and it has everything to do with married or betrothed. Okay, so the same verb is used. But what do you know? There's a double standard in the law's treatment of men and women In this regard and here's what it is women commit adultery if they are married and they have sex with any other man whether he's married whether he's engaged or whether he's single women are adulterous if they have sex outside of their marriage all right men in these times commit adultery only when they have sex with a married woman and then they were subject to the death penalty but sex with an unmarried woman or a betrothed woman no penalties so that's the patriarchal system of objectifying and this is what Jesus will speak against later on so however if a man has sex with a a a, a virgin or um a, a maybe betrothed, but then they'd have to pay money for that because they took somebody's property. But like with a virgin or something like that, he was expected in the moral compass of that time to marry that person. That they that was the expectation. And if they if the man and the man was already married, get it? He's an adulterer. But they just go ahead and take another wife because polygamy was totally acceptable in those times. So men could have sex with women and they could take them into their home because you see it's justice issue. What are women supposed to do? If a man in these times raped a woman, he wasn't punished. He was expected to take care of her. And no thought about how that woman felt about having to go into that relationship. I mean, it just wasn't there. That mindset wasn't there at all. So uh, he would be expected to marry the woman. He had relationships or he was allowed to take other wives with him. So what this reflects, of course, is that patriarchal character of Israel society. Now, any commandment, any any contemporary use of this commandment, would be compelled to treat men and women in the same terms. We no longer think of men, oh, it's only if you have a relationship with it. We don't think that way anymore, do we? We think, you know, outside of marriage, when you have relations, whether you're a man or a woman, then that's adultery. And so it has to, because if it were to remain true to the inner biblical warrant, to update laws in view of changing perspectives and social circumstances. The inner biblical warrant is this. Inner biblical means an interpretation of something in the light that one biblical text casts onto another. So it's the Bible explaining the Bible to us. And the Bible explaining the Bible to us makes it makes it clear that th- we have to. We have to live with these commandments within the context of our, our culture, as Jesus reframed all of the commandments as well. You have heard it said in times of old, he said, and now I say to you this. So he reframed everything within the culture of, of when, he was, um, when he was teaching. So just to go back and to reiterate, the commandment had to do with adultery and unfaithfulness which that entailed. It was not a commandment about fornication. Fornication, I think it's kind of an ugly word. I like cake better, but you know, I like the word cake better, but fornication is this ugly word that means simply consensual sex between two people who are not married. That's what fornication means. It's interesting. I I was once reading about etymologies of words and I came across this, and I thought it was so interesting that in in the early seventeen hundreds if a if people were caught having sex outside of marriage, uh whether it was consensual and and neither were married or not, they were condemned to that puritanical uh, uh, condemnation of fornication, so they were put in stocks in the center of the of the plaza as they did in those times. And and as they did in those times as well, they announced over uh, on top of the stocks what it was that crime that they had committed. So what crime they had committed was fornication under common knowledge, but they abbreviated it. So what does that? Isn't that interesting? I mean, when you go back, when you go back and you look at the when you go back and you look at the beginnings of these terms and (laughs) when you go back and you be and you look at the beginning of these terminologies and all of this thing that comes, it's very fascinating where this stuff comes from. So, um, so it wasn't so in this case, it wasn't the prohibition of sex, but like murder, if you remember, it was the prohibition of idolatrous and unlawful sex, meaning looking at pe- objectifying, looking at people without respect or dignity, taking another person's possession or another person's property. And at the same time, at least some forms of fornication were considered a moral offense to everybody, not just to the Israelites. And we talked about a little bit about that uh, at a Uh, earlier commandment when we talked about like having sex with animals and certain other things that were morally reprehensible to all to all people at all times were aberrant behaviors so but any contemporary usage of a commandment should always draw into its its orbit of consideration at least other sexual activities in view of changed attitudes meaning we have other things to consider in our day and age than they had to consider in their day and age but the resolution of these issues is not often a clear cut matter however certain things like sexual harassment rape pornography are certainly violence against a personhood of another And and you can't consider those things second-level importance just because they're not explicit in Israel's laws. You can see that they, they fall short of the criteria of relating to another person, of dignity, honor, and respecting another person. And Jesus' own extension of the command strikes at the precisely this point that we have to not just look at the act itself we have to look beyond that at how does our society how is our society impacted by this uh, sense of disloyalty and objectification even today so this commandment insists that issues of sexuality are not a casual matter for the good order of God's world. And, you know, part of this is it was really interesting. One of the men today said, I'm talking to my two sons about, you know, uh, you know, saving themselves for marriage and whatever. What do you think I should say to them? And I said, I've already talked to my kids about it. That's on you. (laughs) I'm not going to tell you how to tell your sons. I will tell you how I told my children, but (laughs) we're not going to get into that. But it was, inter- but but it's interesting. So we have some things that we have to we have to deal with in our society that is different than uh, than in other society. So maintaining the physical sanctity of marriage is a central element in the maintenance, if you will, of societal cohesion, and that means that in a committed relationship to maintain that sense of loyalty in that committed relationship is reveals the nature of god as it applies to how you treat one another and how we how we go into a commitment that we make to uh and live out of that commitment god moving god is moving the covenant along you see god is is taking it from from this patriarchal society, I mean, even before that, from just a society that had no rules, no regulations, just a Bedouin people. Look how far they've come already. They've moved from that to having this moral compass that it doesn't change with every place they happen to camp at. They have this. They have this sense of how God wants them to be in relationship, to, relationship to each other, and how that's threatened when we um. How that's threatened when we throw away the dignity and respect for ourselves and another person, how when we, how what happens to us when we throw that all away and it's not a small consideration in light of Israel's impending entrance into the promised land. Where are they right now? Do you remember where they are right now when these commandments are handed down? Yeah, they're at Mount Sinai, they just got started. They've got years to go before they get to where they need to go. And they need those years. They need those years. They can't go walking into the promised land now with just this rabble. They need to be cohesive. They need to be solid. They need to be rooted in in this way of life that God has lifted up and said, this is is what will make you successful as human beings. Trust me, I know I created you. That's basically what God is saying. So fail, that's why failing to obey Yahweh is described as adultery in Hosea 1-3. through You've all heard about Hosea. And Hosea married a prostitute named Gomer. And in the scripture, it, it actually says that God told him to marry Gomer. And people are very confused by that. But, but that whole uh, book, Hosea, is a metaphor about Israel and God. And which is a a metaphor about God and the world God's starting with this group of people, but God is starting with this group of people to impact all people so but from a positive perspective, this means a lively concern for a healthy relationship in all aspects of daily life. It means they're not leaving anything untouched i'm doing some uh I do premarital counseling and I'm doing some premarital counseling right now. And it's always interesting to me because I try to touch, we try to talk about all things. We try to talk about finances and family and faith, and oh, those are all Fs. Anyway, uh, and, and we talk about um, religion and we talk about all these things, and we talk about sex because it is part, it's a component and it's a part of the healthy relationship we have with uh, in a committed relationship. So um, respect and honor and integrity should inform both attitude and behavior towards one another. Um one thing that I want to, I I, you know what, there's just something I wanted to go back and, and share with you. Because it's so um unfair, if you will, but it's so telling of how things were thought of in those times. Um, In numbers five, you will read when you come to that in your reading, it gives this elaborate and disturbing ritual for determining whether determining whether a woman has committed adultery or not. And honestly, when you read it, it is sounds so much like the Salem witch trials. It really does. A woman absolutely cannot win in this situation so it goes like this if a woman is suspected or accused of adultery she is to be brought to the priest the priest will mix up this mixture of bitter herbs and all of this different stuff and she drinks it and when she drinks it if she has not committed adultery it won't harm her but if she has committed adultery It will cause her blood to flow and her uterus to drop, and she will no longer be able to bear children. This is how they determined an accused woman if she had been a part of it. Just think about that a little bit. That is so scary that even an accusation of adultery could lead a woman to a barren life, but not only could it lead to that, if a woman who is bare has no chance of getting of being taken care of by a husband. No chance. In fact, if women were bare, because part of that whole business proposition is you're going to have children for me, sons, hopefully, and if you don't, then I'm going to have to go to my second wife and have sons or my third wife or my fourth wife, because sons, you know, this is how the patriarchal system ran. So Jesus comes along and Jesus has a kind of a new take on all of this. Um, Jesus, in, in, in the way Jesus approaches it, he, he pushes back on it and he pushes the walls out. That's what I'm trying to say. He pushes the walls out on this for us to understand that where is your heart? Where is your mind? how do you regard and respect this person as you know the central issue of all that jesus teaches us about who god is is that god is love and that this pure sense of love also includes respect and integrity and all of these things so with, as with last week's commandment, Jesus presses the commandment back to its origin, as we just talked about in the Old Testament, where it's saying, look at your heart. What is motivating you? What is pushing you? What is pressing you? And, and Jesus moves us from this particular uh, commandment beyond committing adultery from an act. He moves it to a motivation, which is lust. That's what Jesus deals with. Jesus steps back out of the act itself and he goes, Okay, why do people do what they're doing? That's what we need to address, is what causes them to do it. So he interprets the commandments prohibition of adultery to condemn the, the predatory behaviors and structures of patriarchal society because women were just not safe in those times. They weren't. In fact, it was just within the last five years that rape was uh, condemned as against the law in India. Just the last five years where before it was not a crime that could be reported. It was certainly not acceptable But you could not prosecute anyone for that. So you see how the world has been slow to catching up to this because of the the status of women in many parts, you know, in other parts of the world. So Jesus is pushing back against that and he's condemning that predatory behavior. He's condemning a sense of men or male power overpowering And using that against women, he's not condemning men. He's condemning that use of their status in society to uh, oppress and to violate women. And it's also a sense of establishing a new relationship. How can men and women be in a new relationship than they've ever been in before? This is the most wonderful beautiful aspect of how Jesus he doesn't say this is a this is the main issue but he says but it is part of the issue of the whole is how we regard each other men and women how do we treat one another in Matthew five twenty-seven, we read you have heard that it was said you shall not commit adultery but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lust has already committed adultery with her in his heart. And if we're going to be fair about that, we need to say whoever looks at a woman or a man, because we can't step out and say we're so superior that this doesn't happen to us, with lust uh, has already committed adultery. So it's whoever, whoever does it, it doesn't matter. Man or a woman it doesn't matter if you're looking at a person with lust, then you're committing adultery and how does how does that how does that work out so Jesus is for jesus it's not only the act of adultery itself but it's the lust and desire that precede it that are idolatrous that's the that's the terminology and that's to think about because it's not you see it's not the sexual part of it it's the fact that all of your attention and all of your passion and everything has been turned from this person that you're committed and and and, and love you're committed to this person and you take it and you put it onto another and when you put it onto another not only do you do that but you're not looking at that person as a person you're objectifying them as an object you are dehumanizing them and taking away their um their humanity so it's very it's linked very closely to murder you're murdering that human spirit so that turn uh, that that act that turns others into objects to be possessed and consumed ruptures our relationships with God and those around us. now, please understand this I'm not uh quoting a puritanical uh, uh litany for you that says you can't ever look at a uh, you know at another person and say, "Oh." nice looking you know or wow uh, honey you need to do some exercising you know or something i you know that you know that's not what i'm talking about what i'm talking about because lust is much more insidious it's much more it, it's much more uh heinous because lust is what david did with bathsheba david stood in his The story goes, David stood in his palace and looked down at Bathsheba as she's bathing and said, I want that woman. I will have that woman. Regardless that that woman was married, he just sent the husband off on a suicide mission and got rid of him to possess her. So this idea of the death penalty, kings are not exempt from it. So why didn't David die at that point? Well, the scriptures tell us that when Nathan the priest approached David and said, "What would you do if a man did this this and this and this," describing everything David did, David being clueless said, "Why? Well, I would he would be sentenced to death." And Nathan said, "It's you." So at that point, why didn't God, you know, why didn't God why didn't he exercise the death penalty? Well, because David was a powerful king and they needed a king. But God, it says in the scriptures that God then caused the baby that Bathsheba was having with David, this first child, to die in David's place. And if you know anything about the story, you know that David's life went to AC double hockey sticks. After that, just down the tubes, I mean everything, his children and his children's children, it was a mess because of this catastrophic event in which he pretty much sold his birthright for lust of another person. So you understand when we talk about lust, we're talking about something that causes you to uh, let go of the person that you, that you are committed to and objectify another person much to their harm and much to their uh, uh, deprecation as well. So, in today's society, you can see we have, you know, because we interbiblically can't need to reinterpret these things for us today in our society. We have things that we face that nobody has ever faced before. For example, if a person goes online and they begin a flirtation with somebody online. And that flirtation begins to involve, you know, a lot more, but it's never physical. And that person says to themselves, I'm not committing adultery. I'm not being unfaithful because I haven't, I'm not committing that act with this person. According to Jesus, that isn't true, right? Because what they're doing is they are alienating their their passion. They are subverting their, the, the loyalty, they are subverting the, you know, everything that they should be present with their spouse with, they are subverting all of that and they're giving it to another. So we have, these are, these are heavy things that we have to consider in today's society. And we have to understand that we have easy, easy access to opening doors that will lead us to absolute ruin. And what do we do as that society within a society to make to keep ourselves in a place of honor and a place where we can build up instead of tear down? You know the old saying, garbage in, garbage out. And this nothing could be more true than at this particular point. So um, anyway, so lust was a concern in the Hebrew Bible. And the Greek word that's translated lust is translated in the Septuagint, which is the earliest translation of these pieces and bits of, of Dead Sea Scrolls and all of this stuff. It's the earliest translation. It's the Greek translation of the Bible. And so they use synonymously the word lust and covet. And... The, uh, this last commandment addresses a motivation if you covet what someone else has or lusts after whether it's object or human it could lead to one of the behaviors prescribed in the preceding commandments so if you lust and you and you want that and you want to consume it and you want to possess it whatever it is it can lead to murder as it did in the case of david murdering bathsheba's husband by sending them to the front line. It can lead to stealing. It could lead to adultery. So these are not separate. These are all linked together. So as we close, I would like to just take a moment to, to review just very briefly, very very just for a moment, about the purpose of the Ten Commandments and the context out of which it rose. It's very, very important for us to understand that as a society, as a world, we've all been given some piece of a moral compass. We can understand that. To the tribes that are you know, cut off from the world to everything else, a moral compass exists in which certain things are considered wrong. And to a letter, you can bet that murder is one of them. And some of these other things seem to be one of them. So we have, that's a given we have those those rules and regulations that we agree as a society, these are the rules and regulations by which we are going to be together in this society, right? And then we have laws. If you break those rules, then you know there's a law against that or whatever. If you murder, you're gonna go to jail or whatever. That's aside from the 10 commandments. Those are just the, that moral compass that exists. So the 10 commandments are a charter of conduct for people who are already redeemed. So who were these 10 commandments given to? Were they given to the population in Egypt? Were they given to Alexandria or some of these other places? Who were these 10 commandments given to? They were given to the Israelites at the bottom of Mount Sinai who were redeemed, who were taken out of Egypt, God had already redeemed them. This is the code of conduct for the redeemed people. The people who already participate in God's redemptive plan by being walking and talking examples of what it means to be created in God's image. So they are, in other words, commands of God to be understood that these are commands God has given to God's people. If you're a believer, if you're a follower of mine, these are, this is the way you're going to operate together. And Jesus comes along and says, if you're, a, if you're a believer, if you're a follower, here's the two rules that it hangs on. Love your neighbor as yourself and love God, right? Those are the two that it hinges on. So we have this moral code that we live by as believers. The problem is when we begin to say that, that our moral code is something by which we judge those who do not believe, that becomes a bit of a problem. When we say, and, and I don't mean that people shouldn't you know, not kill, we have our moral compass, we have our laws against many of these things, the, but the fact of the matter is when we try to use our code as leverage against people. For example, um, for example, when people want to post the Ten Commandments in a classroom or this room or that room or whatever, what we're basically saying is in doing that, we're saying, so we expect you to abide by these whether you understand where they came from or not. Because it's all about behavior at that point. We have diminished what the Ten Commandments was meant to do, which was to reveal the nature of God to God's people so that God's people could then reveal God to the world, we have diminished it by saying the way to a right relationship with God is check these boxes. Your moral behavior is the key to your relationship with God. Now, that's the antithesis of what we understand to be true as Christians. We, what do we understand is key to having a relationship with God? Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is how we have a relationship with God. And then all of these other things can follow. Our life, we, we're transformed by the Holy Spirit. Our desires begin to change. The work of salvation is being worked out. But it's not a matter of, am I good? Did I do this? You guys, if we just had to mark off boxes, for one thing, we couldn't do it. We could never mark off all those boxes. They're too high. They're too, They're too. you know, they're not, they're not human. They're not human. And so instead of this, and it just being a way of kind of revealing the values of God, we begin to make it the weapons of God against people. So I want to say all of that because I want to say that we God holds us and we hold ourselves to a higher standard, but, it, is it, but it, it behooves us not to be the judge and jury of people who are outside of the faith and to say, you know, you're not abiding by God's moral standards. You, do you see what I mean? Do you understand what I'm saying? It's a hard concept to get to. Now, like I said before, that doesn't mean I think anybody who doesn't believe should can just go out and get off scot-free. Of course not. We have laws to uh, circumvent that. But we cannot be in a seat of judgment according to this. We simply have to live this and integrate it into our life and be better than we, have, than, than we can, knowing it's not about behavior, it's about what destroys you as a human being and what makes you the most beautifully human you can possibly be and that's what god wants for us so it's important to consider that to step back and to be loving and not judgmental to be forgiving of yourself as well as of the society around us and to know that if you judge a person you have stopped the relationship from being able to move forward so that you can still be in conversation and still bear witness to them of something greater. Okay, so that's adultery. (laughs) Anyway, you've been great and thank you for listening and I hope that you have great time in your groups today. Thank you.